working through the book of Ephesians, um, and we have come to the last section in Ephesians chapter 6. And so over the next few weeks, typically actually a month, um, we're going to be looking at this idea of spiritual warfare. And so this morning, I have the opportunity to kind of um, set this up. Uh, today, I, I will be unapologetically, this will be more of a systematic theology, a, a lecture, if you will, um, in order to set this up for the, the, those of us who are going to preach coming up and looking at it very specifically um, in the, what it means, if you know anything about the armor of the Lord, the armor of God, about the, you know, the shield and the sword and all those sorts of things. We're going to break those into individual sermons. So this morning, I want to try to help uh, myself and, and Pastor Todd's going to be preaching. Pastor Justin will be preaching this month. Um, in order to kind of set that up, we need to have some sort of understanding of, of some, uh, some doctrinal truths in regards to these things because there is a lot of misconceptions and then a lot of things that we are also unaware of in regards when you start talking about demons and devils, um, all sorts of pictures and images come to our minds. So hopefully we can bring some clarity to that and also some precision in how we need to address that. Um, I think that it is fitting that Paul puts this at the end of the book, and hopefully you'll see why um, here even by the end of this sermon. Cool? All right. So if you know me, um, I am a history buff. I, I enjoy history. Uh, Miss Betty Rains, if, if you remember Miss Betty Rains, uh, she was my favorite teacher at Franklin Simpson uh, Middle School back in the day. I still love Miss Betty Rains to this day. She was a history teacher, and that was the first time I can ever remember in class thinking, man, I, I love U.S. history. And I know I've just lost some of you automatically as soon as I included the word history in it. And you're like, we have a history? Yes, even America has a history. It's a brief one, but we do have one. And it's really, really interesting. And I remember speaking specifically um, and listening to her um, talk about the Civil War. And I learned a lot of things about the Civil War from Miss Betty Rains. And uh, maybe she'll listen to this one day. She's a great lady. Um, and uh, in that, one of the things that really stuck out to me were the nuggets of truth that were often just briefly said and skipped over. That happens a lot of times for me in sermons as well. As you guys know, I can really nerd out on something that I think is really interesting historical and how it applies to what is taking place inside of the Scripture. But one of the things that I remember us talking about and have done further research on was that in, uh, specifically, the one that I'm going to mention here today is in, in, in July 21st of, of 1861, there was a group of people from Washington, where we now call Washington, D.C., and they traveled, including, I think, was eventually a vice president of the United States and one of the senators, and just this kind of, this uh, wagon of people left Washington and headed down into Virginia. And they headed down into Virginia um, because there was something taking place on that day inside of Virginia, and it was called the Civil War, okay? And inside of this Civil War that was taking place between the Union and the Confederacy, um, this was called the First Battle of Bull Run, and what was really interesting about this battle in Bull Run was as the Union and the Confederates were fighting here in Virginia, they expected the Union to end this war rather quickly. It had been taking place for about three months uh, whenever the, battle, the first battle of Bull Run took place. And so these, these 
um, politicians, if you will, and a lot of wealthy people decided we're going to travel from Washington, we're going to travel down to Virginia, and we're going to watch the war. This and some other wars would later be known as the, the picnic battles. Because literally as Confederate soldiers and Union soldiers were battling out in these areas and as men were losing their lives for their particular cause, there were other people that were sitting up on top of mountains or on hills watching the fighting take place while eating sandwiches and wearing those little opera spectacles. Because surely this wasn't that big of a deal. Even on this particular run, they, they quickly realized after an all-day bloody battle, after tons of men lost their lives, it, it says that in a scurry, like the people kind of up and, and left as they were kind of realizing this is much more serious than we could have ever imagined. Now skip ahead a hundred or so years, and in the early, late 80s, early 90s, some of you weren't born, others of us were young, others of you were in your kind of midlife there. Um, we skip ahead, and lo and behold, if you remember, as my family would, on certain nights in the late 80s, early 90s, sitting down in front of our TVs while watching um, or eating dinner and watching Desert Storm take place, on our television sets. Not realizing because of the use of technology, we've seen lots of people blown up because of Hollywood. We've seen lots of people dying. And while we're sitting in the easy chair in the couch of our own dens, literally you could watch Desert Storm taking place on your television while eating a TV dinner. Not thinking much about the lives that were being lost, that those were real bombs, real buildings blowing up, real things being dropped from helicopters. And if you remember the Patriot missile, right? And it was the, kind of the first use of this technology where we could fly a plane with a laser and then another plane could drop it where that laser, I mean, it was just crazy watching these things from the comfort and the air condition of our own home while troops were on the ground and while people were being killed. I say all that to say this. This is much of how inside of Christendom that spiritual warfare is taking place. That there are many people inside of Christianity or so-called Christianity who have not come to the realization that you are not in a time of peace, but that we as a people, as God's people, are in a time of war. That there is a constant battle that is taking place. That if you truly follow Jesus, it is not just the merely repeating of some prayer by some preacher at an altar. It's not the checking of a box on some white card. It is not simply getting baptized with water. But much like what happens on the missionary field, when it comes to the decision to follow Jesus and to truly follow after him, many missionaries and pastors and, and nationals who have come to faith do not just simply get overjoyed at the idea of someone converting, but rather are pleading with them, do you understand the seriousness of this conversion? That you are declaring a war and joining this war that is 
is taking place. And it may cause you some physical ailments. It may cause you relational ailments. And it may even cost you your life. Are you sure, brother? Are you sure, sister? And contrast that to America where they'll give you a trophy every year inside of the state of Kentucky for how many people you put through a baptistry. Stark contrast between the call of Jesus is a call to come and die. It's a call to, to take up your cross. And yet from the comforts of our own comfortable Christianity, we have essentially declared peace with our sin. And yet God has called us to something much greater, a much deeper understanding of the war that we are a part of. And so this morning and over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to look at this whole idea. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is going to end his letter. If you remember correctly, the first three chapters are all about your identity in Christ. The, the last three chapters, chapters 3 through 6, are, are all about what it means to live out that identity in the mundane things of life, in all of life, that we are to live like and imitate Jesus. And so Paul is concluding this because Paul understands that this is tough. This is really hard. Am I the only one in this congregation that thinks, man, I would much rather just sit on the inner tube of this world and culture and just ride it out? I feel the urging of that drifting daily in my walk for this thing just to be over. Or to heck with all of this, I just want to go along with whatever the culture is saying that we should be engaged in and that we should be happening. I mean, this is a daily war. It is a daily wrestling and battle. And yet Paul concludes because he says, brothers, there, he knows that there's a time of weakness, that there's a time of lack of strength, that there's a time of questioning. Should we continue to follow after this Jesus when the tough gets really tough, when the suffering is just impending upon us and the weight of the pain and sorrow of our lives, of, of, of trying to live as Christ has lived, there can often be this human and spiritual chess mass taking place. And so Paul's going to say, finally, in verse 10, he's concluding this idea, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. See, brothers and sisters, this passage that we're going to talk about over the next month is, is not, as we often say here at Mission, not about you lacing up tighter your bootstraps, but rather is coming to the understanding that you are weak, but he is strong. That you are weak, but that Jesus is strong. See, the Bible tells us here in this passage to be strong in the what, Baptist people? The Lord. Thank you, too. Y'all can keep being members. The rest of you, you have to re-up, all right? The Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Notice what it's saying here is that we receive our strength from an outside source. Have you ever had to lift something really heavy? Right? And you know that where you go from phase one to phase two in that lift, right? You know, anybody ever lifted anything heavy in here? You know, you try it and you're like, mm, oh, that ain't going to happen, right? 
But then you get back down there again, and you, what do you do? You begin to go, all right, like, like I used to lift weights. I don't anymore. That's why I had this fantastic body, all right? But when I did lift weights, it was this, man, you got to get hyped. You got to get psyched up, all right? And you're, you're trying to get, I mean, you got to mentally prepare yourself. I mean, you're thinking, oh, oh, I mean, that's why there's mirrors everywhere to help you get vain, help you get jacked up for what you are about to do. And you go into phase two and you're like, oh, I got this. That's not what the Bible is talking about. Nowhere in scripture do we see this understanding, I got this. Nowhere is Jesus going, what's wrong with you? That's lightweight, like I used to do to Pastor Justin. Like you live like a girl. No offense to the ladies, because there's some swole ladies and I'm talking about strong women in this world. Y'all seen CrossFit? Y'all watch that cult much? I mean, there's some strong women in this world. All right? But when you're sitting there, it's like, come on, dude. That's lightweight. I mean, Jesus is not in, in heaven looking down at you and going, man, I cannot believe. That's lightweight what sin, Satan, and death is bringing to you. But rather, he is trying to bring us to a point of weakness, to understanding that only he can accomplish what he has called us to. The strength is not our own. It's not something you can grit. You can't drink it in a protein shake or a Zija shake. It doesn't come in a can. It's not performed by caffeine. It's not a steroid shot. No, it is the physical power of the resurrection is lying within every heart of every man, boy, girl, and woman who is inside the person and work of Jesus. There's this radical power, and yet God is constantly putting us at our weakest moments to show us that all we need is to look up and to see the power of God that is not our strength but it is the strength of the Lord's. Like God telling Joshua, who was about to lead the Israelites into the land of Canaan. And inside the Old Testament, we see him constantly telling this young leader to do what? To be strong, to be courageous, because he was about to encounter many enemies and fight many battles. So like Joshua this morning, may we be encouraged to continue on to be strong in the Lord. Paul is not speaking here of a newfound willpower, but God is speaking of God's power. Let it be known, this power is only available to those of us who are in Christ. These promises are not for the unconverted. They are not for the unsaved. But rather, as Paul would tell us in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19, that this is immeasurable greatness of his power toward those of us who believe. Let us not forget this morning that in Matthew chapter 28 verse 18 that Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to, to me. To me. In Colossians 2.15, he's disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So we can conclude here, as David Platt once said at a, at a secret church, I would encourage you to, he dives all into this, but I love this line from that secret church on kind of angels and demons and devils and spiritual warfare. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not fight this war for victory, but we fight 
from victory. See, this is what we are known as in systematic theology, the now but not yet principle. Brothers and sisters, you need to get this. We are weak, but he is strong. And so because we are weak and he is strong, guess what? We've won. The victory is the Lord's. It is is now. It is done. It is finished. It was finished in the cross and the resurrection that we have victory in Jesus. The war is already done. The scoreboard is one bazillion God and zero the world flesh and Satan. And yet it's not yet. And yet you and I have a daily, a moment-by-moment battle that is waging that cannot be experienced, that victory cannot be experienced while sitting on the couch while others are fighting. So we don't fight this war for victory. We fight this war from victory. The second thing that we need to understand from this passage is is that we must be prepared for battle. We must be prepared for battle. And that's what we're going to talk a lot about over the next few weeks here. But in verse 11, it says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We must be prepared for battle. How many of you guys grew up with a flannel board inside a children's church? Right? Anybody remember the flannel board, kids? This was before PowerPoint. It's before TV. All right? This was a felt board, and you had little felt pictures of white Jesus walking around, or actually not walking at all, just kind of standing there like a statue. And I remember the felt board in the Church of God of Prophecy that I grew up in of David. And it was like um, paper dolls. You remember David goes to fight the giant, and what does Saul automatically want to do? Saul wants to put Saul's armor on the little rut David. And literally there was like this paper doll of of David there, and he's like half naked in his his little robe there, and and he's got like a staff and a slingshot, and all of a sudden you could take like the little golden armor, and you could put it over him, and you could tell, man, this was too big. It wasn't his. And yet, when we see David show up to fight, what does he say? Essentially, I come not in my own power, but I come in the name of the Lord. See, brothers and sisters, it is not our armor. It is not our strength, and it is not our armor. This isn't a Rocky montage here. This isn't a Rambo putting on his his white bandana. All right? Excuse me, it was red. Red bandana, white bandana. That's Karate Kid. Sorry. You can kind of see what genre I'm into. The red bandana, the, 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 the screen goes dark and there's nothing but, you know, the, the back of his head. You remember it? He's all sweaty, yet he ain't doing nothing, which is weird. But tying his laces on his boots. Right? That's not what God is talking about. It's not our strength. It is not our armor, but it is the armor of God. He tells us here, he, he puts on this idea as put on the whole armor of God. It's the, the connotation here in the original language is the idea of putting on your clothes. Hopefully, you do not leave your house without first putting on your clothes. And Paul is making connection to that, that those of us who are in Christ Jesus should never leave our house. But one of the first things that should take place inside of the morning is what? Is that we put on the armor of God. I think that I heard Rick Warren say this one time a long time ago. He was like, there's not a a soldier in the world that right before he goes to bed, 
puts on his armor, but rather when he gets up early in the morning, that's the first thing that he does. Because it doesn't make sense for him to put it on before he goes to sleep. Brothers and sisters, we're going to learn about the importance of putting on the armor and what that armor is, but it is important for us to put that on every day. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul is going to tell us there to clothe ourselves in Christ. What does he mean? He's saying put on your identity in Christ, knowing who you are and cultivating the marks of your identity in Christ. Just like we're encouraged to constantly be filled with the Holy Spirit, we are daily to put on the armor of God, remembering all the while this is not our armor. Anytime that we try to help God out or fight the enemy in our own willpower, bad things happen. Remember that whole Moses make the water thing? Right? Look it up. When he goes to help God out and to fight the enemy on his own, he is greatly punished for that, even so much that he can't enter the promised land. All right? So we rest not in our own strength, not in our own armor, but in the armor of the Lord. We must realize that we are weak, but he is strong. We must be prepared for battle. The next thing that we must do is that we must know our enemy. We must know our enemy. It tells us in verse 11 to stand against the schemes of the devil for um, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present, this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Later on, Paul will tell us in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that we are to not be outwitted by Satan. And so how do we not become outwitted by Satan? It is because we are not ignorant of his designs. We know his schemes. We know our enemy. See, this is not only just a spiritual battle, but within this spiritual battle is a very personable one. For those of us here in Christ, it is not as though some of us are in this war and others are at the house. But rather, if you are in Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. It is a very personal one. Notice that he also doesn't describe this, probably because this is an ancient text, but if it was written inside of a current text, then it would not say this. Is that inside of this scripture, inside of these truths, that this is not some kind of like drone warfare. This is not shooting a missile across thousands upon thousands upon thousands of miles to land on a person from, that you have never seen before. But it's described as this idea of wrestling. That there is, there is in sense, a hand-to-hand, -hand, that there's a closeness in this battle. That you're looking at your very enemy in the eyes. That you're not just simply pushing a button and not having to see the ramifications of this fight, but that there's a closeness inside of this battle. Like any good football team, unless you're LSU because they didn't pay attention yesterday. Inside of any good, that was from Miss Cynthia, sorry. All right. She's from Louisiana. All right. So if it, any good football team, what do they spend most of their time doing? Watching tape. 
I really like boxing. I really like mixed martial arts, all those things. And if you, if you hear from any of those people, professional athletes, especially if they're competing against somebody, especially in hand-to-hand combat, what are they constantly doing in preparation? It is not just time in the gym, lifting weights and hitting a bag, but it is meticulously watching hours upon hours upon hours upon hours of your enemy. You know that he or she is going to throw like this, or that they're prone to throw like this, that they're, they're prone to dodge like this or like that. Why, how and why do they know that? They're coming up with what they call a game plan of attack. Why? Because they know their enemy. And there are many inside of Christendom who simply do not know our enemy. And we need to know who that is. So who is our enemy? Who is our enemy? First, we need to understand that our enemy is the world. The world is used inside of the Greek many different ways to talk about all different sorts of aspects, but one of those primary aspects is we are talking about the evil within the world. Worldliness. Even earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, does Paul not tell us, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We see this. We see these principles that within our lives, within the spiritual lives of the believer, that there is this idea of worldliness, that there's this idea of a sinful culture that we are immersed in, that it is, it is constantly wooing us and calling us and beckoning us to come and to live like it. The second enemy that we see is literally our flesh. Sometimes this is referred to as our very sinful nature. All of us in this room are, are, are born as sinful. We have a sinful nature, and that sinful nature then produces sinful fruit, sinful activities. This is very serious for us to understand this idea. Paul talks a lot about this in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as, as sin, as, as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Following in chapter 6, he goes right into chapter 7. It's a very famous passage here in Scripture. For I, I know that nothing good dwells in me. Can I get an amen? That is, in my flesh. For I had the desire to do what, what is right, but not the ability to, to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want is no longer that I who do it, but it is sin that dwells within me. So I, I find it to be the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. 
who would deliver me from this bloody, excuse me, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And this is the story of, of many of us in this room. That we live in that tension. I don't know about you, but I, man, I have cravings. Christmas tree cakes are out. Food. Sexual immorality. Just comfort, laziness. These things that are beckoning me, that it's not a question of whether or not that these things are right or wrong. But man, those, those cravings are severe, are they not? So we learn, as Paul does, man, wretched a man that I am. And yet, where is his hope? Where is his security? It is found in the person and work of Jesus. The third thing that kind of is the ruler over all of the things I just mentioned, the flesh and the world, is the devil and his demons. And this is where it gets a little bit systematic for a moment. Paul mentions here the devils here. The devil and his schemes here. Inside of the Old Testament. Does anybody know what the oldest book inside of the Bible is? It's Job. It's not Genesis. The book of Job was written first. Okay. And immediately, we learn about Job. We learn about God. And we learn about this character named Satan. So when we look at this, I've tried to kind of come up with a definition. I couldn't come up with a good one on my own. Try to be as biblical. There's people way smarter than I am. So this is straight from Wayne's Grudem Systematic Theology. I encourage you, if you don't have that big book, it's bigger than the Bible, but it will help you understand the Bible. Is that demons are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. Okay. Demons are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. We must understand this morning that, that the devil, Satan, that he is a created being. That, that he in, and the demons themselves, that they are not equal to God. You need to get this because there are quote-unquote Christian cults that aren't Christian who will try to tell you things like Satan is Jesus' brother. Or this whole picture of the yin and yang mentality, that you've got God on one side and you've got Satan and the, uh, the evil on the other, and that they were equally strong. And yet that is counter to the scripture. No, it is God, and he is the creator. And even Satan and his demons, they are created beings and cannot accomplish anything that God does not first allow them the opportunity to do that. Have you considered my servant Job? See, we need to understand something about the book of Job. It is not ultimately about Job. We like to talk a lot about Job. But all of the book of Job is really about is the power and the mighty ability of an everlasting God. Not a man, but God. And God's ability to, to have and in control of everything. But when we start talking about this idea of devil and demons, it brings up a lot of different ideas. We just came away from Halloween, or some of us, some of you ignored like it didn't happen, I'm sure. For those of us others, we got lots of candy on Wednesday. 
But any time you start talking about these sorts of things, there, there are lots of questions. And I'll be really honest this morning. There are several things inside of Scripture that, yes, talk about devil and demons, but there, there isn't a lot, considerably. One of the things that we need to understand is that inside of Genesis, Genesis chapter 131, we learn quickly that God believes and says that everything is good. And then by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, who's been cast to the garden? Satan, the devil, Lucifer, who is of the appearance of a serpent. And yet there is nothing between chapter 1 and chapter 3 to tell us how that brother got there. It goes from good to him now being the enemy of God. It's believed, again, by most scholars that there's, there was an angelic rebellion that took place sometime in the, the history of creation between chapters 1 and chapter 3. And we get some glimpses of what that event may have looked like as Satan decided that he wanted to be God. That he wanted to take the throne of God. That he wanted to be in God's place. And so he rebels and he was able to deceive one third of the other angels to come alongside of him. And quickly, God displays him or, or cast him away from his presence. We see possible glimpses of this inside of Isaiah chapter 14, if you want to write these down. Ezekiel chapter 28 and Revelation chapter 12. The key sin of Satan and Lucifer is what? Pride. I want to be God. Later in the New Testament, we see in 2 Peter chapter 2, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to keep until the judgment. In Jude chapter, in Jude verse 6, And the angels who do not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day, the judgment of the great day. So we see this, we get glimpses of this idea of this great rebellion led by Lucifer. It's believed that, that Satan himself was an angel of light that is probably extremely beautiful, that he may have been the cherubim of cherubims, that, that he um, could have been the lead worshiper, the worship leader of the songs, all these sorts of pictures that certain scholars pick up from the, 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 the Bible in order to kind of paint this picture. We don't know much about the rebellion we don't know much about Satan in and of himself, but we do see a lot of how Satan works inside of our flesh and inside of the world. What is the mission of Satan and the demons? The mission of Satan and the demons is to destroy the mission of God. We see this in several different places. It is to, 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 to lie in John 8, 44, deceive in Revelation 12, 9, to murder in Psalm 106, 37 in John 8, 44, and use whatever means possible to cause people to focus on something other than God. They would try to blind people to the gospel. 
In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, as I was sharing the gospel inside of my campus class this week on the campus of WKU, I mean, you could easily see these sorts of things in those kind of conversations that people were having, that people are wanting to be secular humanists, that they, they believe in self, that they believe in other people, that they believe in science, that they believe in all of these things. They can even believe in God. But when you really begin to lay out the gospel, that there are only two religions in the world, there's the religions of works and there is the religion of grace. And when you try to lay that out before them, how quickly they become blind to this. It simply cannot be that good. It can't be that easy. But what about, but what about, but what about, but what about all of those but whatabouts he's accomplished in his death and his resurrection? Everything that God requires, Jesus did. Our faith is one of trusting, not in our own good works, but in the finished work of Jesus. And that is counteractive, is the complete antithesis, antithesis of all other religions and practices in the world is the gospel of Jesus, that he has done it. And yet it's the hardest one for us to believe. Why? Satan would want to blind us. He would want to, as Galatians 4, 8 would say, keep us in bondage instead of coming to God. He will try to tempt you, cause you to, to cause doubt within you, to be filled with guilt, to be filled with fear, to be filled with confusion. Sometimes even Satan is allowed to bring on sickness that, that, that he can cause envy and pride and slander and division and any other weapons destroy you and your witnesses. The schemes and the methods of the devil are well thought out. They are planned attacks, brothers and sisters. He is crafty. He is sophisticated in his attacks on you. He, he does so with precision and pinpoint accuracy at what will turn your affections from Jesus toward the sin you are naturally bent toward. Our world is not becoming more atheistic. Our world is being more consumed with false religions. Satan's and his schemes have been involved in in our governments, they've been involved in business, they've been involved in culture from the White House to your house, from public school to Sunday school. He is a scholar, he is a scientist, he is a philanthropist, he is a theologian, he is a parent, and he is a pastor. You must not just believe that this is an ignorant beast out there. This dude knows what he, he does not know everything. He is not everywhere. So if you ever say, the devil's got a hold of me. No, nah, like he's probably messing with Todd Crosby. He ain't messing with you. All right? He's at Todd Crosby's house. Like he, he's like, eh, you're a gnat. Like, all right? Todd, he's, he's showing up. Okay? The devil is not everywhere. There's only one-third of angels who are demonic. Okay? We don't know how many of that is, but they're not like gremlins. They don't get wet and multiply. All right? There's only so many of them. But let us not, let us get this. He is smart. He has been around a long time. He can see. They can see. And you're naturally bent toward these things. And so he's playing chess. He's manipulating. You can be searching on the internet for Bible verses and then begin to see advertisements that will lead you far away from Scripture. Can you not? When you're not looking for sin, let you know like a ninja, he is plotting to find you. I 
I, I went to the Kentucky football game yesterday with Eric Beeson and with my brother-in-law, Todd. And, and hoping Kentucky win. Obviously, they didn't watch enough film either. Like, Georgia's good. <laughs> um, what was interesting to me is, is Todd and I were having kind of brother-in-law conversations about it was cold. But how many half-naked people were there? I'm talking about like, like I had a gloves on, a fleece, right? A toboggan. And yet the alcoholism, the half-nakedness, the language that was not reflective of Jesus was everywhere. I didn't go there for that. I, I, I went for the hot dogs and to watch Kentucky play football. And here's the thing. You guys, you need to understand this. I've got friends that do meth. You guys know what that is? Watch Breaking Bad. It'll tell you all about it. All right? You, are, you coming to me in an alley and saying, hey, do you want some of this blue stuff? Meth. And I'd be like, dude, you're a fool. But for some of you, that's not the case. The alcoholism, for some of you, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a temptation for you. For some of you, it is. The whiff of it, the commercial of it. The devil is scheming. When we have to sell hamburgers that aren't very good with half-naked ladies on top of sports cars, this is serious. And, and every one of us have a sensuality. It's not always necessarily sexual, but every person in this room, you are bent toward something. And the enemy knows that. Sin, Satan, and death knows that. The world knows that. Your flesh knows that. And it will creep in in every way possible to summons you to come to it. serious. I love uh, pastor and commentary by Kent Hughes. It's great if you pick it up. Everyone that he writes, I really enjoy them. But he says this, Satan has no conscience, no compassion, no remorse, no morals. He feeds on the pain and anguish and filth. Often if you ask people who is the worst person to ever live, they'll say Hitler. Hitler was the worst one. But you know at the end of the day, Hitler had a conscience he did. Somewhere in that dude's heart, he cared about someone. He cared about something. There was even a section inside of the whole thing that he thought what he was doing was on behalf of God. There's some scary quotes out there about that brother and what he was claiming to do in declaring war on the world and how it was coming from God. Brother had a conscience. The devil doesn't. He feels no remorse in what he is doing in the world. He has no remorse 
and what he is doing inside of you. I mean, have you ever noticed, brothers and sisters, we need to wake up, sin, Satan, and death, the world, the flesh, Satan himself. I mean, he's, he is after our kids. He is after our families. He is after your life. He is after our governments. He is after the poor and the rich and everyone in between. That there is a war that is taking place, and he has declared it, and he's battling, and most of us are sitting and watching TV dinners apart from it, thinking that this is just happening out there. But no, I want you to know it is happening right now. The affections of your heart are under siege by sin, Satan, and death. I mean, have you ever noticed of the battles that wages win us inside of us when you're supposed to come to church on a Sunday morning? A hangnail has never hurt so bad as it does on a Sunday morning. I don't know about this one. It may be contagious. Better keep that hangnail. I better stay home. I better stay home. I got a hangnail. Oh, little Johnny, you got a hangnail too? Oh, see, told you. You got it too? We better better stay home. Or an MC, like right before, you'll go to work all day. You ground it out, ground it out. All day long. Cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. MC time. Oh, man. I'm tired. I got an itch that just won't scratch. I think I got a little sniffle. Right? You're walking around just checking kids' ears. They're, they're like, oh, let, check Johnny's fever. And Johnny's like, Mama, I'm fine. Oh, let's check Johnny's fever, right? You'll get in the biggest blow-ups with your kids right before you're supposed to go do something. You'll get in the biggest fight with your husband or your wife right before you're supposed to be obedient and doing something. Things that will never keep you from your job will keep you from being obedient in Jesus. But I'm talking about How about every morning when you wake up? The battle begins. You know how I know this? Because the first thing that that I'm prone and tempted to do is to grab my cell phone and see what's happening on Facebook, what's happening on Twitter, what's happening on Yahoo, what's news, what's happening on ESPN, check my email from this, check my three email addresses that I've got to see what's happening. And then I wonder why I'm ticked off at the rest of the, the, the day. Because I'm attempting to put on my armor later. Instead of the first thing being my time with the Lord. Because I would rather sleep than get up a little bit earlier. Because immediately, and, and I don't know about you, this is real talk, right? I'll, the night before, I'd be like, all right, I got my stuff laid out. First thing I'm going to do, I'm going to get up, fix me some Folgers, because we like cheap coffee at our house. I'm going to fix me some Folgers, have 12 cups ready for me and my wife for the day. It's, it's made, the best part of waking up, Folgers in your cup and a Bible in your hand. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to set my alarm. It's going to be at this certain, certain time. And guess what? That alarm come off, and I'm immediately in battle going, do I hit the snooze button? And God is saying, come to me. Come to me. And my flesh is saying, find the snooze. And they'll be like, okay, well, I'll get up. I'll, I'll snooze it once, and then I'll get up. And then I get up, and my evil spawns of Satan, my children, are showing attitude because they got to get up. Right? And then it steamrolls steamrolls and steamrolls until 
9 o'clock at night when, if you're like me, I'm at the stage where I'm like holding up this eye at 9 o'clock trying to stay awake and I'm like, I spent no time prepping for battle today. I'll do it in the morning. Repeat, repeat, repeat. He's crafty. Anybody who's been on a foreign mission trip, can I get an amen? You know exactly what I'm talking about. The junk that will happen to you seven days leading up to that trip will cause you to question even as you're driving to meet the people you're going with, maybe I should call them and say, I can't go. Your kids will act a fool. Your wife or her husband will act a fool. Your, something will happen at your job. This entire time as you're prepping for what's supposed to be happening, the obedience that God is calling you to, sin, Satan, and death is trying to thwart the mission of God. And you need to be aware of those things inside of your life and inside of your home. So application and response, you're going to get a lot of that for the coming week, but here are a few quick things. In this idea of what it means to engage in spiritual warfare, application and response is number one, resist the devil, not with words to the devil, but through the worship of Jesus. Resist the devil, not with words to the devil, but through the worship of Jesus. We must understand that we've got to have this wartime mentality. And, and we live inside of a culture, though, that as C.S. Lewis would say, if you never read the screw tape letters, you should. But in the introduction to the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis makes this, this statement. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which we, our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and, and, and fail at an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both of these. They hail a materialist and a magician with the same delights. What's C.S. Lewis saying there? That among us, even Christians, that there are those of us who pay no attention to this. There is not a spiritual war taking place. But then also that there is this group of us, that there's a devil in everything. And that both of those are ploys by sin himself, by Satan itself, by the flesh itself, by the world itself. Is that, that think about this even in regards to our culture. How many television shows are about supernatural things? How many movies are about supernatural things? We've got a young adult reader in our house. Most of the books for kids my daughter's age, guess what they're about? Supernatural things. Our culture has an unhealthy obsession with supernatural things, or we all pretend like these things don't exist, and both of those things are from the enemy. I grew up in a church that was way this way. Everything had a demon in it. So if your car broke down, you were the guy outside lifting the hood and anointing it with oil, all right? No offense to the oil people in here, all right? Not that kind of same sort of stuff. But you anoint your engine with oil as you're cast, devil, come out of my engine. I rebuke you, Satan. I mean, I've been in churches with people like, laying hands on people, talking to the devil, Christian cussing him to death. 
And you know what that is? Foolishness. It is not the Bible. It's foolishness. Satan is, I rebuke you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. Aha! Let's take up an offering. I Man, it's like every week. Devil's like everywhere. I'm not scared to walk through my house at night because I thought demons were there. I mean, I wasn't allowed to play Dungeons and Dragons because I was going to start role-playing it, and all of a sudden I'd start seeing demons in my bathroom. No joke. Not the Bible. Resist the devil with not words to the devil, but through the worship of Jesus. It's not about speaking to the devil. But it's about acknowledging and turning from sin, Satan, and death, the world, and flesh, turning toward the person in Jesus and saying, my affections toward Jesus are, are so eclipsing all that this little rat has going on. And so I'm going to focus away from sin, Satan, and death. I'm going to turn my affections and my heartbeat towards Jesus. And that is how we resist the devil. Not speaking foolishness. It's like running into hell with a, wet, a water pistol. And yet the Bible is very clear how we are to engage these things. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 through 9, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The second thing that we need to see in resisting the devil is by imitating Jesus. The devil hates when we act like Jesus. If you remember, when we get to this real application part, what does Paul tell him to do? Imitate. He, he tells him, imitate Jesus. 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 You know why? Because since Satan, death, the world, and the flesh hate that. It gets really awkward in an argument between husband and wife when one of you starts acting more like Jesus. All right? There's backsliding, what they used to call it in the church I grew up. Backslide, don't backslide. Ha! But if you're in an argument and all of a sudden start, someone start being really Jesus-like, even if they're wrong... You talk about a hold-up moment. When your kids are acting like sinners, and someone starts acting like Jesus in that moment, the devil hates that business. When you start not allowing your anger to go down, or the, the sun to go down on your anger, again, this is all stuff from Ephesians. When you have a terrible boss and yet you continue to work like Jesus works inside of that place on the tyranny of that terrible boss, guess what? The devil absolutely hates that. And he, we're constantly being called inside the book of Ephesians and in all of the New Testament to imitate this Jesus. And Jesus hates that we find our identity in the person and work of Jesus. That's why in James chapter 4 it can said, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Romans 12, 1-3, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. You want to engage in battle? Stop yelling at the devil and start worshiping Jesus with everything in your life, moment by moment, second by second, resisting the temptation of sin, Satan, and death in your life and turning to focus on the majesty and the greatness of God and all of this stuff will go strangely dim in view of the light of who God is and his character. We resist the devil by worshiping Jesus, being humble to realize that we are weak, but he is strong, that our identity is not found in the world and in our flesh and in Satan, but our identity is found in Jesus. Mission Church. Let's go to war. Every one of us. Don't be a person on a picnic watching the battle. But if you're in Christ, this is trench warfare. It is bloody. It is nasty. It smells bad. You may lose your life, but you'll find it. There aren't any atheists in foxholes. But there are believers engaging in a battle that we have already won in Jesus. But not yet. Let's pray.